have, uh, we've been doing a little series, uh, we started last week called Teach Us to Pray, and uh, we've been exploring kind of this thought and idea really rooted in the Old Testament. Um, I'm wearing, I have to wear my glasses at some point this morning, I'm officially getting old. <laughs> I was sitting in the front row this morning thinking if I had bifocals I could wear them all the time, but <clears throat> that's really old. Uh, anyway, ja- I'm kidding, I'm kidding, if you wear bifocals, that's God bless you. You look amazing. You're young. Look at that. I came to church and the pastor offended me. That's great. Hey, but we've, uh, we've been in a little series and, and kind of a little three, four-week series that we're exploring this idea that God wants to be present with us. And, uh, and if you remember last week, we unpacked this Old Testament passage found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is where David brings the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol or the representation of God's presence amongst his people. It had been disregarded by King Saul for some 40 years, and David's taking the throne. Finally, he's taking the throne, and, uh, and he's uh, announcing how he's going to lead the nation. And for 33 years, what David did was David put God's presence at the very heart, at the center, and at the foundation. It was the root system of the nation of Judah. It was like, this is who we're going to be as a people. We're going to be a people that are marked by God's presence. And we talked about this last week, and we unpacked that, so I won't go back through that. But, but suffice to say, what I hope you remember from last week is this desire that God has to be with us. And we see it in the Garden of Eden. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it in this story that we unpacked last week. We see it in the life of Jesus, that he's Emmanuel, God with us. We see it throughout the Old or the New Testament. Paul's writings in Corinthians where he's talking about you're the temple. You collectively are the temple. You're the dwelling place of God's presence here on earth. God wants to be with his people. And as we started out the year, we felt as an eldership and as a pastoral team, as a staff, as we've been praying and seeking the Lord, we felt so, and just so impressed on our hearts that the Lord was calling us into a season where he was drawing us to himself, where he was saying, it's not business as usual. It's not just kind of ho-hum, let's just keep moving. No, there's this yearning, this deep desire in the heart of God to be with his people. And we recognize that God's omnipresent and he's everywhere at all time, and we recognize that, but God wants to be personally present with his people. And so we asked the question last week, are we consciously aware of God's presence with us? And the conclusion that we came to last week was that prayer really is this conscious awareness of God's presence, the presence of God that is continuously always with us. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to kind of get into a routine of life where it's like, man, I've just got to get on with life. And I might be driving to work and throw a few prayers up, you know, as I go. But that's not what God wants for us. God wants something greater. God wants something more. He actually wants to abide with you and you with him. And so last week was all kind of about this idea of God's desire to be with us and how we could respond to that. And this week, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking the other side of that, which is, well, what about our desire to be with him? What does that look like? And this thought that, that, that when the disciples sat down with Jesus, they'd been with him for three years, and they, the thing that they wanted him to teach was, would you teach us to pray? 
Because there was something, not about the formulaic approach to prayer that Jesus had, there was something evidenced in, God, in the life of Jesus about presence with his heavenly Father that the disciples wanted. They wanted to understand it. They wanted to know it. They saw it, and they too wanted to live from that place. And we're called to live from that place, but we face some challenges because we live in a pretty busy pretty crazy world. How many would agree with me on that, right? I was, uh, I was with a gentleman this morning that I do coffee with, uh, and, I, and we were talking about smartphones and how often, you know, we touch our smartphones. In fact, I was going to save this to later in the sermon, but experts say that we touch our smartphone some 2,600 times a day. And he says, no, I don't. I only touch my smartphone about 10 times a day, you know? So I decided to start counting how many times he touched his smartphone in the hour that I was with him, you know? We live in a crazy world. We live in a distracted world. We live in a busy world. And so how do we cultivate a heart that is present with God? And I want to suggest to you that as we're exploring this idea of prayer, because prayer is the vehicle that we get to be with Jesus. We get to be in his presence, and he gets to be with us, and, and we get to commune and be intimate with him. But I want to suggest to you this morning that if prayer is that vehicle, that prayer doesn't start with you and I speaking. Prayer starts with you and I listening. That might sound a little weird because maybe you've been around Christianity for a while and I thought that prayer was me talking to God. I thought that prayer was, you know, either I have a written journal or maybe I spend some time actually talking to him or, or, or you know, I have a list that I kind of work. So I thought that that's what prayer was. But I want to suggest to you this morning that prayer actually starts with listening rather than talking. Uh, my daughter, Madeline, um, she's now 18, but I have a picture of my kids um, Aw, aren't they cute? They're like puppies, but they grow up. They're so cute. And uh, this was when my kids were uh, obviously a lot younger. They're now 23 and 21, and Madeline on the left side there um, is, uh, she was, she's 18 now, but she was three or so when this picture was taken, three, four years old, something like that. And we had moved to uh, New York um, when she was around three years old. And uh, one of the things that we discovered was that around that kind of two, three-year-old mark, you know, your kids like have vocabulary and they have a certain number of words and everything that you, you know, that they would be kind of able to say. And what we discovered about Madeline was that Madeline actually was way behind on speaking. And, uh, and so she had like a limited vocabulary and she, she uh, you know, she wasn't, it wasn't that she wasn't able to talk, she just didn't talk very much. And by the way, she's 18 years old and still doesn't talk very much today. So there's, you know, that's part of her personality. But she was behind in terms of the learning curve and her ability to speak. And what we discovered was that when we took her to the doctor, that her ears were plugged, and she ended up, and some of your kids have had this, where they had to put plugs or their tubes in their ears. And it was when she began to hear that she learned to speak. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was fun because we had moved to New York, so she's from, uh, she's from here in Oregon, born and raised here, but moves to New York, but she's really kind of learning and picking up the accent there. So she's like three years old, and like we're close to Boston and where we lived, and, uh, and so she would say mountain, curtain, you know, <clears throat> pack the car. Just because she was learning to speak, right? But the, the point that I make, try to make this morning is that learning to pray begins with listening. And how many of you know we're notoriously bad at listening? Have you ever been in a conversation with your spouse and you didn't actually hear what they said? 
Yeah, right? You know, it's like, like I know you're talking. It's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Like, I, I know you're talking, but I'm, formula- I'm formulating my answer to the question. Why? Because we're notoriously bad at listening. And yet hearing each other leads to conversation and to understanding, doesn't it? And so the point that I want us to try and maybe wrestle with a little bit this morning is this idea that when it comes to engaging with God's presence, when it comes to being with him, that, that this vehicle of prayer, this idea of me being in communion and being, having this intimacy with Jesus, what, what, we want, what I want us to recognize this morning is that prayer is something that perhaps begins with us listening more than it does with us talking. Now there's this beautiful passage uh, of, of scripture uh, um, in the Psalms, Psalm 46 in particular. In fact, if you've got your Bible with you, I would love for you to turn, actually turn to Psalm 46. I know we don't do that much in church. Maybe we should do this more, you know? Maybe we should like leave phones at the door and like just open up our Bible a little bit. How many would go, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. But, but in Psalm 46, um, Jesus, or, or, sorry, David, uh, in fact, this Psalm 46 is part of a collection of Psalms from Psalm 42 to about Psalm 72, so 30 or so Psalms that were actually written Psalms, songs and prayers that were recorded during the time of the tent or the tabernacle that was set up by David. So remember last week we talked about how he pitched a tent and that there was 24-7 worship and prayer going on in the tent. Well, Jesus, or sorry, David hired a crew that would go and they, they would either write songs or they would record the songs that were just being sung, the prayers that were being sung in that tabernacle or in that tent. And so in this atmosphere of God's presence, where prayers and worship was taking place, there's this group of guys uh, called the Sons of Korah that were recording what was going on. And in Psalm 46, they record this really incredible passage of Scripture or this song that was being sung. And I want to read it to you in its entirety, and then I want to focus in on one verse. And this is what it says. It says, God is our refuge and our strength. Man, the Word of God's just so encouraging, isn't it? Some of you just needed to hear that. God is your refuge and your strength. Not you, not your circumstance. God is your refuge and your strength. Listen to this, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear. Some of us need to make that our verse for 2023. God is your refuge and strength. He's always ready to help you in times of trouble. So we will not fear. Even if earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea, let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of God, the sacred home of the Most High. God himself lives in that city. It cannot be destroyed. God will protect it at the break of day. The nations are in uproar and the kingdoms crumble. God's, God thunders and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. He goes on in verse 8 and he says this, Come, see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world and causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear in two. He burns the shields with fire. And, and I just read nine verses, and if you understand the structure of that passage, what you recognize 
is that the, the song that's being written, the prayer that's being prayed, is this evidence of how God is with his people. And in the first three verses, it, it basically breaks it down and it says, listen, God is greater than any crisis. And some of you maybe are in the middle of a crisis. Some of you are coming out of a crisis. Some of you are probably going to go into a crisis this year. And you need to hear this morning from Psalm 46, from the very word of God, that God is greater than any crisis. The second segment in the next few verses, verses 4 through 7, is this idea that his presence is always with us. And so it's this idea that God is present with us and he protects us. And it goes on in the last little segment to talk about the idea of see how God works. And what's happening in this song that was written or this prayer that was prayed during this season when David had established this tabernacle, David had established this idea that we will be marked by the presence of God. What is being presented here is the evidence of who God is and how God is present with his people. That God is the one who is greater than anything. God is the one who is present with us. God is the one who is protecting us. Don't you see the evidence? God is among us. And so the people would have been gathered in this tabernacle or in this tent and in this town square and, and this song would have been sung. And remember, there were all of these musicians and worship leaders and singers and somebody probably began to pick up this song, almost like an anthem, and they began to sing it over and over and over again. And what they were doing was they were declaring who God is, how God is present with his people. And something begins to work into the people of God as they begin to declare and recognize who is God and how is God present with his people. But here, there's a shift that takes place in verse 10. Because the first nine verses all have to do with the evidence of how God is present with his people. But in verse 10, God speaks directly to the people about how he wants them to respond. And it's a very famous verse that you're familiar with. And it simply goes like this. It says in verse 10, that be still. So remember, here's all the evidence. Here's who God is. Here is how God is with you. How do we respond to it? Here's how we respond. Be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. And I will be exalted in the earth. And so what David and what these musicians, the songwriters, the people praying this prayer, singing this song, what they wanted the people to understand and what God wants us to understand is that our response to God's desire to be with us is to be still and to know that he is God. That's not really easy in the world that we live in, is it? We, we don't do well with slowing down, do we? Like being still is not, it's like the world we live in. It's just not conducive to be still. We're like, we're like, a, we're like two-year-olds, you know, with like a bag full of sugar, aren't we? <laughs> Never stop. Always going. In fact, I, I read this uh, from a website. Listen to this. This is from a website that's seeking to help people from around the world to understand Americans. You ready? This is where if you're from another country like me, from Ireland, you feel so good about yourself. <laughs> Kidding. I'm an American citizen. I'm good. I've owned it. But this is what it says. Listen to this. It says, Americans are always in such a hurry. 
Americans are often seem this way because the tendency is to use achievements and accomplishments to measure your worth. They're in a hurry to get things done because it's, the, it's only then that they feel that they have proven their worth to other people. The more Americans accomplish, the more they feel they are respected. To them, time is money. How many of you have said that? Time is money, right? Giving you the impression that everything is just business. One reason Americans tend to underestimate the need for relationships is that time is so important to them. They don't realize that building relationships and taking time to talk to people is so important. And when I read it, I was a little bit embarrassed. Actually, I was a lot embarrassed. Because it, it kind of is true, isn't it? That, that we are frenetic people. We're all about productivity. We're, we're a nation that probably takes fewer vacations, fewer days off, works, more, uh, works a longer work week than most other nations on the world. Because there's something in, uh, deeply rooted in our American psyche that says the more productive I am, the more valuable that I am, the more valuable that I am, the more significant or worthy I am. And yet in that context, Jesus says, be still. Be still. Be still. Dallas Willard said that you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of, this, of spiritual life in our day. In fact, a guy by the name of Carl Jung, Jung who um, a lot of his research was, if you've, how many of you have ever taken kind of a Myers-Briggs test? Carl Jung is the kind of, it's a kind of personality test, how you're wired, all that kind of stuff. A lot of his research behind it, he says, hurry isn't, the, uh, isn't of the devil, it is the devil. We, lit, we are a people that are in a hurry. And the reason why is that, that, and forgive me for a moment for kind of going down this path, but, but I want to kind of call out some things that I'm trying to call out in my own life this year because I feel like this sense that God is saying, I want, my desire is to be with you. And my response oftentimes to God, and I'm embarrassed to say this even as a pastor, is that, well, I, God, I got all this stuff I got to do. In other words, I'm telling God I'm too busy to be with him. The God of the universe is saying, I want to be with you. And my response tends to be, God, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And I think what has happened, um, especially in America, but around the world, is that humanity's relationship to time has changed. And there's, there's three things, and uh, I think it's John Mark Comer that highlights these three things uh, that really have shifted our relationship as human beings to time. And the first is the clock, the second is the light bulb, and the third is the smartphone. Right? And we all know the smartphone, because I heard the snicker around the room. Right? It's like, yeah, 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 I know how bad it is, but I'm not going to leave it behind and fundamentally, our relationship with time has shifted and changed. In fact, the first, now the Greeks and Romans, right, they developed the sundial, but it wasn't until 1370 in Cologne, Germany, that the first clock was placed in a public square. And all of a sudden, people began to be aware of time. They began to be aware of minutes that were ticking by, because prior to that, it was really decided, that, you know, your relationship to time was really determined by whether the sun was up or the sun was down. And who was, the, who was the person that set all that in motion? And is there a purpose and a reason that maybe God did that? 
So, so the, the, this, our relationship to time, we became more aware of time ticking by. And there's, there's times with my own kids that, man, I, I've been like, oh, hey, I got to go. Are you kidding me? Like, I've got this relationship with nothing more precious in my life than my relationship with my wife and my kids. And I'm going, uh, I'm aware of time and I got to move on somewhere else. And, and so our relationship to time has changed because of the clock. The second one it was the light bulb. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, which really affected humanity's ability to work longer and rest less. Do you know that in 1879, prior to the invention of the light bulb, the average American slept 11 hours a night? <laughs> yeah, that was a great response. I love that. <laughs> like... <laughs> that was awesome. Do you know that the average American today, and some of you are going, I wish I could get seven hours of sleep a night. The average American sleeps seven hours a night now. Why? Because our relationship to time changed. Because all of a sudden we have a light bulb that we can control when things are lighted up or are powered around our, our house. And it puts us a little bit more kind of in control of what we do. And because of our American psyche, what we do, because time is money and we want to be more productive, that allows us to work a little bit more. It allows us to accomplish a little bit more. And so we end up resting less. We end up being still less because of it. And then, of course, I don't need to explain this one. The last one is the smartphone, right? There are now no boundaries to when and where you can work, never mind distractions. The average American touches, listen to this, the average American touches their smartphone 2,617 times a day. If you're a power user, they estimate that a power user of a smartphone will touch their phone 5,200 times a day. Now, I don't mean that I just picked it up. Right? I mean, there's one touch, there's two touches, there's three touches. Oh, that's interesting. Scroll, 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 right? And we all do it, don't we? And I'm not here knocking it, but I'm just saying, all that I'm trying to say is that the Lord has this deep, deep desire to be with us. And because our relationship to time has so been transformed by the progress of humanity by the development of all of these technologies and I'm so grateful for them I'm not knocking them but I'm just trying to be real about the fact that we and our relationship because our relationship to time has changed and we're so driven by the world in which we live we oftentimes don't have time to be still to wait when's the last time it was just just quiet Nothing going on. We don't have those moments very much in life. And yet the Lord is saying, come be with me. How do I be with you? Be still. There's a gentleman by the name of uh, Michael Zigarelli, and he's this author, researcher, and he did a five-year study over, uh, it's over five years, um, uh, 139 countries exploring busyness, hunger, or sorry, hurry, overload among Christians, and what he concludes is that, that we live in a culture that distracts us from God. And here's what, listen to his conclusion. 
It may be the case that, number one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins anew. And I know I've parked on this point because it's so easy for us to kind of recognize, yes, check the box. I know that God wants to be with me. You know what, God? I want to be with you. And I feel that in this moment. Like I came to church this morning and I sensed God's presence and worship was amazing. And and I want to respond to the word of God. But the moment that you and I leave this room, everything in the world that we live in is trying to distract us and take us away from being, just being with God. And it's important for us. I'm not, I'm not telling us to unscrew our light bulbs and smash our cell phones. And like, I'm not, that's not at all what I'm saying. But I do want us to be aware that if we are going to be still, we have to acknowledge that there are some challenges that we've got to face. And so the question really is, well, then how do we be still? And I love this verse. It's in 1 John 2 and verse 6. It says, whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must live as Jesus did. And one of the things that we recognize about Jesus is that, that Jesus was constantly, remember, Jesus didn't have light bulbs, he didn't have clocks, and he didn't have smartphones, but Jesus was constantly withdrawing from the buzz, withdrawing from the crowd. I mean, even if you look at the life of David, what we recognize from the life of David is that David, um, who is the ruler of a nation, and a na- it's a, a nation that's involved in basically tribal warfare. They've always got to be defending their back. They've always got to be building the military. They've always got to be taking all of these things uh, seriously. And yet David said, the one thing I desire, the one thing is that's most needful is that I'm with him. And so we've got to become the kind of people that in small ways and in big ways are building some sort of pattern into our life that's allowing us to respond to God's desire to be with us with our desire to be with him. We've got to do what Jesus did. In fact, I'll talk about this a little bit tonight at team night because there's this verse, John 17, 24. Jesus is at the end of his life. He's about to go to the cross and he's having this conversation, a prayer time, a time of intimacy with his heavenly father. And he makes a statement in John chapter 17, verse 24. And he says this, he says, Father, here's my desire. Now there's a lot of things that I probably would fill into that space. Number one, can we avoid the cross? Number two, can I like just, like can we just, like, rapture me now. Let's just do it, right? Like, like, there's probably some things that I would probably... But you know what Jesus' desire was? His desire was that his people, those that you have given me, would be with me. That they would behold my glory. And so here's Jesus going to the cross with a singular focus, and it's the same focus that David had in the Old Testament. It's the same focus that God had when he created everything, and it's this idea that I want you to be with me. And in order for us to be with him, we've got to slow down. We've got to slow down enough to see reality from God's perspective. And honestly, that's what this week is about. We're starting a week of prayer and fasting, and at the end 
of the, the, the service today, we're going to hand you out this little booklet that simply teach us to pray. And it's literally a week of us just spending some time together in the Word of God. It's a, it's a time for us this week to set some time aside. Maybe it's 15 minutes in the morning. Maybe it's your lunch break in the car. Maybe it's some time in the evening after the kids have gone to bed. But we're setting a time. We're slowing down a little bit to say, God, I'm going to be still and to be with you. We're also going to take some time this week to fast. How many of you have ever fasted before? Right? And I don't mean intermittent fasting. It's kind of popular on social media right now. But fasting is simply this idea that I am choosing to hunger more for God than I am for the food that I would eat. And for you, it might be, man, I'm going to skip a meal. And when I skip that meal, I'm going to take some time to actually read the passage, to reflect upon the passage, whatever it is that we're going to do together each day this week. Because I believe that God wants to meet with you, that he wants to be with you. And if God wants to be with you, we ought to respond by saying, I want to be with you. I want to take some time. And so this is something that we're going to do this week together as a church family. But I want us to recognize that when God spoke through the sons of Korah in Psalm 46 and verse 10, and he says, I want you to be still. The be still was not some sort of self-care retreat. The be still was for a purpose. And the be still was so that we can know God. All of this evidence presented in the early part of this verse, this song. God's with you. God protects you. God's for you. Now I want you to be still, and I want you to truly know who I am. And so the question is, well then, how do you and I know God? I mean, God seems so big, and sometimes he seems so distant, and his word seems so complicated sometimes. Like, how is it that if I'm going to be still, I actually get to know God? And the first way that we get to know God is by reading and meditating on his word. You know, so often we read, I don't know if you've, do you ever read the Bible like this? And I don't know if we'll ever be honest enough to really admit to this. But do you ever get up in the morning and go, God, I need to hear from you this morning? Nope, that's not it. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Oh, and it matches my coffee cup. God, you're speaking to me today, right? Like sometimes we treat God's word like it's our own personal kind of devotional. That somehow this book is about me. Somehow this book, you know, because we, we kind of peddle this idea that it is a guidebook. And, and it is. It gives us instruction for life. So I'm not necessarily knocking that, right? But, but I need us to recognize that the purpose of this book is so that we might know God. God's declaring who he is in this book. And so when God says, I am your refuge and your strength, that's not a statement about you, that's a statement about him. And what it ought to produce in us is a response that says, you are my refuge, you are my strength, I'm relinquishing control and I'm surrendering my life to you. We get to know God through his word. In fact, this verse, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 8, 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we look into God's word and as we discover who God is through his word, we are transformed. But it all begins by beholding and looking into who is God. 
In fact, you know, that, that's why in February, we're hosting a lab, a little three-week lab on a Wednesday night that's simply titled, How to Make Sense of the Bible. Because we recognize that this is central to who we are. This isn't a philosophy about life. It's not kind of a guidebook. This right here is, ought to teach us how to get to know God. We ought to look into the Word of God and recognize it. And, and I love Mark Patterson. He says this, Scripture is God's way of initiating a conversation. Prayer is our response. The paradigm shift happens when you realize that the Bible wasn't meant to be read through. The Bible was meant to be prayed through. And if, excuse me, if you pray through it, you'll never run out of things to talk to Jesus about. And so I want to suggest to us, in fact, that's how we've structured this book. We're going to read a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to pray it. We're prayerfully going to go through this passage of Scripture. And so what I want to encourage us this week to do as a practice is to read the Word of God slowly and aloud. Let, if there are words that begin to linger or catch our attention, look at those words a little bit. Ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand a little bit more. Pause, reread them, savor them personalize them and apply them to your own life. Allow your mind to wander down the path of where the Lord might seem to take you. Let's just look at Psalm 46. I want to look at one verse. God is our refuge and our strength. Stop, Lord. I just, even just stopping and reflecting upon your word, what I discover about you right here is that you are the one that overshadows me. You're the one that strengthens me. You're the one that guards me. You're the one that leads me. You're the one that guides me. Like, we have the opportunity to begin to get to know who God is through his word, but we've got to slow down enough to allow it to settle in to our hearts. And so I want to encourage us to do that. But there's another way that we get to know God. Because God isn't just distant and disconnected. You've heard me say this. God is intimately involved, and God continues to speak to us today. He'll never violate his word. He'll never tell us to do something that's not supported or governed or directed by his word, but God continues to speak to us today. In fact, John 10, 17 says this, My sheep listen to my voice, and, they know, and I know them, and they follow me. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. Okay. Can you hear my voice right now? Okay, open your eyes. Whose voice did you hear? Go ahead. Are you sure? Your eyes were closed. Are you sure it was my voice? You, you, well, you're sure it's my voice because you know the sound of my voice, don't you? Well, the Bible teaches us the same thing, that if we are followers of Jesus, we're sheep that we know his voice. And you know, I guarantee you, you know when God is speaking to you. And, and so God continues to speak to us. In fact, God continues to speak to us today through dreams and visions. The Bible says in Acts 2.17, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And so if you're old, or sorry, if you're having dreams, you're obviously old. <laughs> that's what that's saying. <coughs> but, but how many of you have, and, and I don't want to be weird about this, but sometimes the Lord speaks to us through dreams, that there's kind of this impression or this sense that we can get. God speaks to us through 
what we describe or what the Bible describes actually as the prophetic or prophetic words. It says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 13. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 1 says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially those that may prophesy. The idea just being that God continues to speak to us today. I think what God spoke to us at, after worship about there being a shift is just God entering into our little world and our little space and saying, I've got some things I want to do. And for every one of us, that might be a little bit different. But God continues to speak. God continues to speak through the counsel, common sense, quiet impressions, and the personal reflection. Look at this, Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool seems right to them, but the wise listens to advice. And I'm telling you, God continues to speak to you and through, uh, through you and to other people. I love this quote by Peter Gregg, and I'm going to land the plane and close it right here. But most people today miss the voice of God, not because it's too strange, but because it's too familiar. They expect the Almighty to sound dramatic and bombastic and unmistakable and a bit spooky. And I'm just telling you that the Lord continues to speak. I guarantee you that you've felt an impression in your heart, and it's the Holy Spirit just saying, hey, I want to lead you and I want to guide you. I was up this morning early around 5.30 and I was, uh, I was in our living room and I was just, I had the fire going and I was just, just praying and I was having such an amazing time with the Lord and a thought entered my head and I got up off of the couch and I walked towards my office to open up my computer and I felt this little impression, don't, don't open up the computer. And it was like the Lord was just saying, I'm right here, don't be distracted. You see, the Lord continued, I guarantee you, if you'll slow down, if you'll be still, if you'll allow yourself to get into his word, God is speaking. And he's speaking not because he's trying to get you to do this or do that. He's speaking because he wants to be with you. His desire, his heart is to be present with you. And so as, as we close this morning, I think the, the, the call of God God to us this morning as individuals, the call of God to us as a family of believers this morning is, hey, my heart's to be with you. Will you respond? And that's a choice we've got to make. We can rush on. We can just go on with life as normal, or we can choose to be still and to know who he is.